Will you take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis 3? Genesis 3. I think I'm going to stand at the pulpit and not use the wireless, but... Rachel, will you just check the back and make sure that the sound is going as it should when you're done there? Genesis 3, we are turning to a Christmas message today, and we'll have a Christmas message next week, as uh, we kind of have a bit of a double Christmas this year, with Christmas falling on a Saturday, and the Christmas program being after Christmas, but uh, it's a wonderful time to just consider this time of year, and uh, I want to in particular draw to our attention some of the significance of Christ coming to earth, and why it should matter to all of us. And uh, I do have a manuscript still this morning. I do have an outline. It is in the bulletin. So it's all ready, but I really hope that you'll listen in. Uh, Some very, very important things we'll consider today. And it's really been on my heart for a number of weeks now. If you think back actually through some of the sermons I've preached recently, you may actually see a few themes that I couldn't resist putting in there that are going to show up more today. But my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, Psalm 118.6 says, The Lord is on my side. I just want to bring you a message entitled, God is for us. God is for us. Let's pray. Father, in these few moments, we ask that you'll fix our attention on the truth of your word and that you'll grant us grace to believe the truth, reject any lies that we might think. Give us the humility we need to do business along those lines. Give us the grace we need to believe what you say. Thank you for always giving us the grace that we need to walk in a humble way with you, and to grow as you desire of us. Father, we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost every Christmas movie today has the same plot. Someone has lost his Christmas spirit. (laughs) Someone no longer believes in Santa Claus or in the good of Mankind, or some kind of positive truth. Well, why? Well, because they've been just disappointed in life. Perhaps they have a strained relationship. Something went wrong. Perhaps they didn't receive a certain Christmas present. So no longer are they a believer. And so the dramas of these Hallmark kind of Christmas movies hinge on a person becoming a believer again. The hopes is that they'll recover the Christmas spirit. And you could say, well, they had been believing a lie, but now they've come to the light of the truth. And of course, all these things end so happily. And this kind of drama seems to resonate with people in general. Well, why? Well, it seems to have a parallel that is far more significant. In Romans 1, we read the deplorable state of mankind. Romans 1.25 says this, 
they, mankind, exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Mankind has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And just as a character in a Christmas movie has lost his Christmas spirit, so all mankind no longer believes the truth about God. Instead, they believe a lie about God. Obviously, a person who's not united to Christ doesn't believe the truth about God. But even we who are united to Christ, to some degree, we struggle to believe many of the truths about the God we know. We too struggle. So today, I want us to all consider whether you've exchanged truths about God for lies. Our study begins in Genesis 3. This is where we learn first this morning, brothers and sisters, the great temptation is to doubt the character of God. The great temptation that we face is to doubt the character of God. We read that Satan tempted Eve to doubt God. Well, how is that? How did Satan tempt Eve to doubt God? Well, the temptation was to doubt what God had said, to doubt God's word. Look at Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, now this is a strange situation, the serpent's talking, but this is what happened. This is not a make-believe story. The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which it could be translated strike it or you say wolf it down. Don't eat it, don't wolf it down. If you wonder what that would kind of be like, imagine a child with a piece of Panera bread and they're just eating it, putting it down. God said no when it comes to that tree. Can't do that. So Eve says that God had said, you shall not eat of that tree, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So Satan told Eve that she she wouldn't die if she disobeyed, if she ate the fruit. You see, it was Satan who floated the idea that what God said was not so. And of course, you read early in the scripture and you think, how is it possible that Eve believed what the serpent said and didn't believe what God said? How is that even possible for her to do that? And it's possible for us to come down quite hard on Eve and even resent her that she believed a lie like that. I mean, she should have known better, right? Sometimes that's what we think about the first person. Yet, consider the fact that up until that point in human history, man had never heard a lie. Man had never had the sense that he should question something that's said. Man had never been suspicious of anything. 
You say, that's really different from today. It is really different from today. Man was innocent. So it's really not hard to fathom how Eve was deceived. She had no preconceived notion that a serpent talking would lie to her. No one had ever lied before. She was tricked. The Bible says that Adam was not deceived, but in contrast, Adam acted willfully when he ate the fruit. But she was tricked. She believed the word of the serpent. You say, but how could she be tempted to believe the serpent instead of God? Notice what the next verse says. It begins with the word for, an explanation here. Because the serpent, serpent is going to explain to Eve something about God. Notice verse 5. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So not only has Satan tempted Eve to doubt God's word, and we're likewise tempted to doubt God's word, but the temptation is to doubt God's way. Satan told Eve that God had denied her something that was good. You say, what was the good thing that Satan said God was holding back from her? What was she missing out on? Look at the text. What, did, what was the appeal that Satan put before her? Well, obviously, her eyes were shut to something because Satan promised that when she would eat, her eyes would be opened. So for some reason, she's not seeing something. There's something that her eyes are not seeing. There's something she's not enjoying. They're not like God since Satan promised that eating would make them more like God. That's another thing that Satan dangled out in front of her. They didn't know by experience good and evil because Satan promised that they would learn those things by eating. In all, Satan floats the thought that they're missing out on something good. And God is the miser who's keeping it from them. He knows that, he knows this. That was Satan's charge against God. God knows what he's doing. He's keeping that from you. And so we think, well, what kind of God would deny such pleasure and joy if he really loved people? You see how this is an attack on God's character. It's slander. Ferguson said, Satan's tactic was to lead Eve into seeing and interpreting the world through her eyes, what she saw when she looked at the tree, rather than through her ears, what God had said about it. And that's a very careful distinction we should make. It's that same dynamic in the phrase, walking by sight versus walking by faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's that dynamic of, will I walk by what I hear, God has said, or what I see with my own eyes. Satan's tactic was to lead Eve into seeing and interpreting the world through her eyes. And what Eve did was exchange living by faith in what God had said to living by sight, leaning on her own understanding. And mankind does that kind of thing regularly now throughout human history. So kids, think about it. Your parents tell you, don't eat the cookie until after supper. 
but you sneak the cookie anyway. Why? Because the cookie looks so good, and you think that having it right now is the best thing for you to do. You go by what you think, by what you see, by what you perceive to be true, instead of what you told, you've been told would be best. Young adults, they know about God's design for marriage is wonderful intimacy within marriage. But then young people think, well, why would I wait? It seems that intimacy is something that I really don't need to wait for. Why is God restricting me when I feel like I feel? Why would God say no to that when so many other people are enjoying it? So it is. And it can be compounded in the fact that people, instead of going on what they've heard God say, they go along with what they think. And those examples we could talk about for the rest of the day. When we think through our sinful choices, we have to realize that they come down to whether we believe that God's way is good or what we perceive is actually better. It's smarter. God didn't get it right on this one. It comes down to whether or not we believe that we are the better captain of our ship, a better custodian of our life. And the truth is that we are all prone to be like the prodigal son who did as he pleased. Especially we can do that in America because we can basically have anything. And one of the biggest upsets is Amazon is slow or there's a problem in the supply chain with ships still in the harbor. You see, Satan tempted Eve by encouraging her to doubt God's word and his way. Satan is trying to get Eve to think you can't trust a God like that. You can't trust how God is directing you. You're better off if you make your own decisions rather than trusting the character of God. That's the greatest temptation that any of us face. Is to make an exchange when it comes to what we believe to be true about God. And to some degree, every single one of us wrestles with exchanging what we've heard God say the truths revealed in God's word about who he is, and what we wonder might actually be better. Great temptation is to doubt the character of God. Secondly, this morning, our great need is to trust the character of God. We need to trust God. We need to come to the realization that Eve came to. Look in Genesis 3.13. God has confronted Adam and Eve then, and notice what Eve says in response. She says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So Eve confessed that she had been deceived. She confessed that she had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. She said that she disobeyed. Of course, she's not the only person who has been led astray to believe a lie. Paul said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So it's not just an Eve issue long ago. Paul said this is a Christian issue among a Christian church, that folks in the church can be deceived about truths about God. 
you can get this wrong about God, where you're off course. Now, you know that I'm not much of an outdoorsman. But I have a conceptual knowledge that when you're in the woods, you need to have your compass, you need to know where north is, and you need to keep your bearings. Because if you don't, you can get lost. And from what I understand, if you try the outer round ox and uh, you get lost, you're not coming out. Even so, every single person's greatest need is to keep the truths about God firm, or they lose their bearings on life, like the prodigal did. You lose it. What do I need to believe very specifically about God? This is what we all need. We need to trust what God says. We need to trust his word because what God, do, what God says is what he does. He is true to his word. From the very first pages of scripture, not only do we learn that God created all things, but what we read again and again and again is that, that God said and it was. Repeated again and again is the fact that what God says is the truth. It's reality. He's not lying. Everything God says happens. So even after man sins, God's word proves true because man immediately had this sense of shame and suspicion of one another. Man realized immediately that what God said is true. That eating of that fruit would be a bad thing for them. Even before he's come and confronted them. Man has realized, yep, we got this wrong. God was right. And then when man's confronted and he's cursed, man learns that he would be punished with death. And through the book of Genesis, we read, they lived and they died. They lived and they died. What God said would happen, happened. What God really wants us to believe is his word because consider the fact that it was the word of God that became flesh. And God wants us to listen to him. One of those oft-repeated themes in the Gospels. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. So in Christ, we have a true expression of who God is. So we all know the truth about God because Christ is God. So we need to trust what God says. There's the start. There's our first great need. Second, we need to trust God's way. I'm not trying to be cute by saying word and way. What I'm trying to say is you need to believe that God works for our good. You need to have resonating in your soul that of all the people in the world, God is on the lookout for my best. He is working for my good. That is not to say that God is person-centric, you and me-centric. We're not that important so that God focuses all his attention on us. But seeing that he has made us, he knows what's best for us. And he works for that. You say, well, what has God done for us? How could we have any thought that God really does care about us? Just think for a moment what Adam and Eve knew and what we know. God was the person who created man. God was the person who gave man life. 
God was the one who commanded man to enjoy the fruit of the trees of the garden. That was his command. You see all these wonderful fruit trees? Have at it. Enjoy it. Go for it. That's my command. Enjoy. Then God gives man the opportunity to learn good and evil by obeying, by not eating of the tree. (coughs) He gives them this law. He says, here's an opportunity to learn what it is to love me, to show that you'll listen to what I say. What did God do? God wanted mankind to learn the lesson. We, might, we say it this way, the easy way, not the hard way. Because there's always two ways to learn something. The hard way or the easy way. You know, there's, there's nothing really wonderful about learning all life lessons the hard way. God wants us to learn obedience by doing what's right. Satan tempted Adam and Eve to learn right and wrong by choosing the wrong way. So that their eyes were opened, they did learn what good and evil was, but they learned the lesson the wrong way. And that's repeated through human history. That's repeated in your life and my life. But for all these things that God gives man, man, instead of believing God, makes a terrible exchange You say, well, what does God do when man chooses to rebel? This is where we get to the actual Christmas part of the sermon. What did God do that ought to reassure every single one of us today that he works for our good? And what God did is he sent his son. He also sent the Spirit to indwell believers. But given that this is a Christmas time, we'll focus on that for now. Consider the most known verse of the Bible. God, that is the Father, loved the world. How do we know he loved the world? God gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It was God's idea to send his Son. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption to sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So God sent his son. God sent his spirit. God is not a miser. God is not there trying to keep lots of good things from us. You say, well, how do we know that? Is there a text that actually tells us that? Yes. Let's turn in closing now to Romans 8. Romans 8. Let's turn there. More familiar passages, but I want to draw them together. The Bible says, after some of the most triumphant verses in the Bible, ones that say things like, we know that all things for those who love God work together for good. We read in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The point being, God is for us. 
Then it says in verse 32, He, the Father, who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, the Father, not also with him graciously give us all things? You say, what's the truth of that passage? The truth that God is trying to say is that he freely will give us all things. You say, prove it. Well, because God has given the best thing he could, his son. The argument is from the greater to the lesser. Since God has given his very best, he will surely give us everything less than his best. So while people may say, well, I don't know if I can trust God. I don't know if God would be good to me. I don't know if God will be gracious to me. I don't know if God loves me. We can't say that because God has given his very best, his son. When did he do that? When the son of God came and took on human flesh in the fullness of time. The deepest demonstration that God is for us is that he has given us his son. Why is it significant? It is at the Christmas time that we realize that God is not a miser. That God is not one who's trying to withhold all kinds of good things from us. God is one who should be trusted. Because for people, while Romans 5 says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But even beyond that, while we are opposed to God, God sent his son. So what that shows us is his character, is his disposition. God is someone who ought to be trusted. It is a lie that Satan told when it comes to, for God knows that in the day that you eat it, your eyes will be open, that you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. That's the lie. In closing then, remember all those Christmas movies? You see this wonderful conversion of the person who's lost his Christmas spirit. He doesn't believe anymore. But through some kind of magical something in the story, he becomes a believer. In Santa Claus or human goodness, whatever it is. You know the great thing that we need to remember during the Christmas season is that we are prone to believe the lie that God really does not have our interests at heart, our good at heart. He's not really for us. He keeps so many things from us. There are so many things that we miss out on because we choose to listen to him. God would just erase all these things and say, no, I gave my son. I gave my very best. I am good. And you should, you must trust me. And by God's grace, that's the truth we need to believe today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for that demonstration. Help us to realize its significance, Lord. Those times that we doubt you, doubt your way, doubt what you've said. We ask that we would humble ourselves. We choose to walk by faith instead of by sight. That you would be gracious to us, Lord. Because you indeed intend to give us good things. 
Yes, we know that we live in a sin-cursed world, and we know that things will be difficult until you come and remove all sin. But Lord, we have had our neighbors tell us that we live completely different lives because we don't indulge in what they indulge in and suffer because of their choices that they make. So, Lord, we do have a degree of blessing that the world doesn't know, that our neighbors next door don't know. Help us to remember that. Help us to especially trust what you've said and what you've done. We pray for your help to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.